Good morning again. Today we are going to continue on our Hot Button Issues series that I began a couple of weeks ago. Uh, We've had a few special services in between with Father's Day and uh, our membership welcome service. So today we are going to continue in that series entitled on how to not respond to those who have fallen away. And so uh, I would invite you to bow with me once more. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active and that your Holy Spirit is ready to speak to each one of us through it again today. So I simply ask, Lord, that you would uh, take me, your servant, speak through me. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to begin this morning with a story with a couple of pictures attached to it. And in this first picture, you will see uh, a slide of something that the famed sculptor Michelangelo constructed in 1499 at only 24 years of age, believe it or not. This was his first masterwork, which he named the Pieta. Now, the Pieta is equal parts beautiful and intricate sculpture, which was painstakingly carved out of a single piece of marble. So that entire thing is one piece of marble, And it depicts the moment that Mary, the mother of Jesus, held her lifeless son in her arms the moment they had removed Jesus' body from the cross. And so for over four centuries, this sculpture stood in St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City with countless numbers, millions upon millions of people through the centuries admiring its majestic beauty and its brilliant craftsmanship. But on Pentecost Sunday in the year 1972, something completely unexpected happened. The Pieta was attacked by a vandal named Laszlo Toth. Now, in this next picture, incredibly, the place was filled with tourists that day, and a tourist was taking a picture just as Laszlo Toth jumped over the the little railing that was set up around it, and with a geologist's hammer began to viciously attack the Pieta, striking it over a dozen times. In this attack, he succeeded in knocking off a portion of her face, the left arm, and other damage. In this next picture, you can see that Mr. Toth was actually subdued and tackled by tourists who managed to tackle him to the ground and hold him down for security to take him away. But here we see that the damage was already done. As you can see in the picture, her face, her nose is chipped, her left arm is missing, and you can see great damage was done to a nearly 500-year-old masterpiece. Thousands of pieces of stone fragments were shattered and scattered all over the floor. In fact, some of the tourists took to picking up some of the pieces. One tourist picked up her eyebrow and tucked it away in a pocket which will come up again later on. But now we see this once perfect masterpiece, one of the most brilliant works of art ever created by a human mind and human hand, was hopelessly marred. Now what to do? Well, the shocked curators of the Vatican didn't know what to do, and so a debate began to rage over how best to respond to the situation. One group said that the damage to the Pieta was now a part of the sculpture's meaning, And so it spoke to the violence of our modern age, and so as a cautionary tale, it should be left in its damaged condition. A second group argued that 
It should be restored, but with clearly visible seams left behind as, again, a cautionary reminder of the assault. Still, a third group argued that a full and seamless restoration be undertaken, sparing no expense and using only the very best of craftsmen and methods to return the Pieta to its former glory. Now, if you were in their position and given those three options, let me ask you, which one would you choose? How would you respond to this unprecedented situation? Well, today I want to focus our attention in on a parallel issue that directly concerns the church, but with far greater importance than how to respond to merely a damaged sculpture, as important as it is. And that is this question. How do we respond to those who have fallen away from the faith? How do we respond to those who once professed faith in Jesus Christ, who followed in his, in his steps, who followed his pathway, who gave verbal commitment to following in his way and even showed evidence of it in their lives, but have since, whether through word or action, wandered away? Of course, this isn't just a theoretical question. Rest assured, if you feel like your family or this church is the only one that's ever dealt with this, let me tell you that every church family, every church family has dealt with this. I think through the ages, this has been an ongoing issue that every church family, including this one, has had to grapple with. Every church family has experienced the pain of seeing someone you know and love fall away from following Jesus Christ. And as we already discussed two weeks ago in part one of this series on how to not fall away from the faith, we looked at how the reasons for falling away from the faith are many. But the four broad categories are these. False assumptions, going into the faith with false assumptions. Secondly, having wrong priorities. Third, unrepentant sin. And fourth, spiritual warfare and attack. So now we are going to move beyond the reasons for why people fall away from the faith and into the realm of how do we as the church and as individual members, how do we respond biblically to those who have fallen away? I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the first of our key texts for this morning. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. And at the uh, last part of Galatians chapter 5 and verse 25 And then the passage carries over uh, into chapter 6 and verse 1. So I'll begin reading there in Galatians 5.25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted." So this morning, what we're going to look at first is we're going to look at how not to respond to someone falling away from the faith. And the first thing not to do is this. When someone is down, don't pile on. When someone is down, don't pile on. Now, for the sake of argument, let's imagine that this next week, you learn about a member from Bayav who is arrested for possession of crack cocaine. What would your initial response be to such an outlandish situation? Would your first gut reaction be to pray for that person, to grieve for that person, and wait before jumping to conclusions and assuming their guilt? Or would your gut reaction be to immediately pick up the phone, call your closest friend, and say, have you heard what just happened? Now be honest, which would be your first reaction? 
Now, in the passage that Paul, uh, that we just quoted from Paul, he used this phrase, you who are spiritual. Now, what, what he's getting at with those who are spiritual, he's getting at those who are spiritually mature. Now, often people will look at this verse and say, well, then only the super elite status Christians are allowed to correct people or, or those who are wandering from the faith. But no, this isn't what Paul's getting at. He isn't getting at some elite class of super Christians or, or a job only reserved for pastors. No, he's talking about those who are humbly living in step with the Spirit. And therefore, in step with the Spirit, they are mature in the faith and qualified to gently correct and lovingly restore others. Now, he contrasts this in the preceding verses, and though Paul doesn't specifically say immature Christians, he describes what spiritually immature behavior looks like. And he says this, it's being conceited and provoking and envying each other. So what Paul's getting at is a spiritually immature Christian, because of conceit or vainglory, pride, they, they hear something about someone else falling, and so they feel as though if, if I pile on, it's going to make me elevated. It's going to make me a little bit better because, look, I didn't fall the way they did. And so out of conceit, they pile on to make themselves look better. It's that idea of, look, someone's down. I'm going to step up on top of them so I get higher. But that's not the way it works in the Christian faith. Jesus never modeled stepping on top of someone who's down to elevate yourself. No, Jesus always stooped down to the level of those who are down to help them up, to say, hey, you, get on my back, not the other way around. And so here we see the, the mature Christian response to those who have fallen and the immature. And one of the great ways of, of immaturity coming to the surface is when we hear about someone else falling away And we secretly or not so secretly gloat at their failure and we begin to spread the juicy details around. Not for the sake of prayer or edification, but for the sake of just we love to talk about it. Now, in case you weren't aware of this yet, the Bible calls this sort of behavior gossip. The Bible also lists gossip as a sin. So it's the height of irony when we gossip about other people's sin... And so, in fact, we are ourselves sinning when we gossip about someone else's sin. As a case in point, there was a small-town weekly newspaper in Georgia. And it had a very interesting misprint on the front page of one of its newspapers. There was a lady in town called Mrs. Smith, who was known as the town gossip. She knew about everything and about everybody, whether they knew about it or not. And if there was a rumor going around, Mrs. Smith was usually the source of it. You could trace all rumors back to her. Now, the local front page news usually consisted of stories of who shot the biggest deer or caught the biggest fish. But after Mrs. Smith went to Atlanta for throat surgery, the headline read, quote, Mrs. Smith is in Atlanta having a rumor removed from her throat. When some of her friends approached the editor to correct the misprint to tumor removed from her throat, he said, nope, I think I'll let it stand as is. (laughs) Now, if you're someone who has trouble with gossip, if you're someone who gossips about those who have been caught in sin or have fallen away, I suggest 
that you allow the great physician to remove the rumor from your throat. Because gossip is simply piling one sin on top of another, and it's never helpful to the person it is about. It does not elevate the person who passes it along or receives it, and in fact, it only drags down the church as a whole. A great pastor named A.B. Smith, the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, once wrote, You had better bite your tongue before you say anything unkind, hateful, or harmful against another brother or sister in Christ, because Jesus is listening. Proverbs 26, verse 20 says this, Without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. Of course, we know spreading gossip is wrong. But equally, if we listen to it, we're also guilty. You wouldn't tolerate it if someone came into your living room in your house and dumped a, a steaming load of garbage on your living room floor. You wouldn't tolerate it. You, you might as firmly and politely as possible say, Hey, not in my house. Get that out of here. In the same way, don't allow someone to dump a load of gossip in your mind. Be polite but firm and refuse to listen to it. Sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that gossip can actually be helpful. But it is truly dangerous. Far more churches and lives have been divided and destroyed by gossip from within than by attacks from without. Vance Havner once said, More churches are destroyed by termites than by tornadoes. Spreading malicious gossip is like termites eating away at the stability of a church. So today we need to recognize that when someone falls into sin or or is straying away from the faith, piling on is not helpful. It is only harmful. So we need to guard our hearts, guard our tongues, guard our minds, and don't pile on. Don't do it. Number two, when someone is down, the second thing not to do is this. Equally as important as the first is don't leave them there. Don't leave them there. Returning to the dilemma of the Vatican over how to respond to the damage done to the Pieta, the first group argued to simply leave the statue alone, leave it in its damaged condition. And sometimes Christians take the same attitude towards those who have fallen into sin. We say things like, well, they knew better, so we'll just leave them alone, we'll shun them, and we'll let them suffer the consequences. But what does Paul say? Paul says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should leave him alone, should condemn him, should cut him off forever. No, he says, you who are spiritual should restore him. Now trust me when I say this. Trust me. This is a process far easier said than done. But the fact is that according to God's word, doing nothing is not an option. Consider, when God created his masterpiece, the Garden of Eden is set, he places his finished work, Adam and Eve, in that garden, in perfection. And then along comes a vandal named Satan. And he comes along and he wreaks havoc on God's masterpiece. How did God respond? Did he leave Adam and Eve condemned in their sin forever? Yes, there were consequences. But did he leave them there without hope on the horizon? In Luke chapter 15, where we read Jesus' parable of the lost sheep, when the shepherd lost just one out of 100 sheep, how did he respond? Did he say, well... You know, as a farmer, as a shepherd, a 1% loss rate for the season, that's perfectly acceptable. 
You know what? I've, I know hog farmers who would take, gladly take a 1% loss rate for a season. Those are good numbers. But did he have that attitude towards the one? Or in the following parable, when the, when the woman loses one of ten coins, how does she react? Does she just shrug her so, shoulders and say, well, all these cracks in the stone floor, I'm never going to find it. I'm going to waste so much time. I'm, I'm not even going to bother trying. Did she respond that way? No. In each instance, every effort and even extreme measures are taken, all with the aim of restoring that which was lost. So if we want to imitate God in our response to the fallen, then doing nothing is simply not an option. So when someone is down and out, when someone has strayed away, don't just leave them there. So now that we know how not to respond, the big question, how should we respond? Well, number one is the inverse of the second. We don't just leave them there, but we seek them out diligently. Sometimes people are so deep in the pit of sin, they aren't even capable of climbing out to the surface to call for help. Or perhaps they've, they've drifted and wandered so far from the church that you don't even cross paths with them anymore. In those cases, we must be like the good shepherd and make intentional and diligent effort to seek them out for restoration. Restoration is truly a beautiful thing. I personally enjoy watching car shows. Well, Declan's kind of got me into it because he enjoys watching them, so I enjoy it because he does. But we watch these car shows on the, on the, the car channel where they take these old rusty shells of a car, sometimes just pulled out of a bush somewhere, they get it into their shop, and they restore it to pristine showroom condition. I just, it's amazing to watch the, the lengths they go to. Leanne enjoys watching home renovation shows where they buy a house that's completely broken down and almost uninhabitable, and then they restore it and transform it into something uh, just truly beautiful that anyone would be so proud to live in and call their home. Now, what a half-hour television show can't properly convey, however, is just how much time and energy and cost is required in that restoration process. It's simply a half hour, they condense it all down, but so much work and effort and sweat goes into that process. But listen to this. The final reveal isn't possible without the intentional and diligent effort. In the same way, the restoration of a brother or sister in Christ is not easy. Yes, it requires personal cost of spiritual and emotional investment. It requires time and effort to seek out and to engage. And it requires the courage to face the real possibility of anger or resentment from the one you are seeking to help. And I know so often that that poses a barrier to us because we're afraid of severing whatever relationship remains. But listen, friends, it is worth the effort. It is worth the effort. James 5, verse 19 to 20, our call to worship this morning says this. My brothers and sisters... If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And who is that someone going to be? Who is that someone who brings the wanderer back, if not you, if not me? One of the greatest challenges to me is that failure 
at least in the short term, is a distinct possibility. We go to the, the person, we, we have prayed, we have done everything right in preparation, we've gone to them, we've shared our heart, and it's been put back in our face or just rejected. And because failure is a distinct possibility, at least in the short term, that often poses a barrier to trying again. But whenever I get discouraged that the wanderer will never return and I feel like giving up, God's word reminds me that if even one wanderer returns to Jesus, if even one comes back to the faith and the family, it is worth it. Just one. Because Jesus concludes the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin in Luke 15 with this incredible statement. Listen to this. In the same way, I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One is worthy of a heavenly party. Just one. Let me ask you today, do you know and love a wanderer? I do. I love several wanderers. If you love a wanderer today, remember this. Heaven will rejoice if just one of them returns home. Don't give up to discouragement. Don't give in to it. Don't despair. And whatever you do, don't give up. Don't give up. God hasn't. And he encourages us not to as well. The story's not finished yet. Continue to seek their restoration prayerfully, diligently, and sacrificially. Don't leave them there. Help them back up. Seek them out. Then secondly, and this is so important, restore them gently. Now remember that gentleness is one of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, to be clear, gentleness doesn't mean that corrective truth isn't spoken or or avoided. You have to speak the truth. But what gentleness means is that the necessary correction is spoken in a spirit of gentleness in such a way that it can be received. And this is so important because, let me ask you, what is your gut reaction when you've had someone accusingly point out something that you're doing wrong? How have you felt about it? When someone just says, hey, look what you're doing wrong there. How, how do you respond? What do you want to do? Your gut reaction is you get defensive. You want to fight back. You want to hit back. You want to say things like, yeah, well, you're not so perfect either. And when this happens, it is so easily that what was intended as a restoration project descends into an argument with nothing more being accomplished than two angry people now with hurt feelings. And this is why approaching restoration needs to be done not with a heavy hand, not with an accusing tone, but with a prayer-soaked, humble, and gentle, and loving approach. Returning once more to the Vatican's debate on if or how to restore the Pieta, the third group finally carried the day, and a full and seamless restoration was begun. Master craftsmen from all over the world were selected, And then they picked through the 100 bits of broken marble and began to puzzle them back together. In a a makeshift lab built around the statue, these workers spent five months just identifying pieces as small as fingernails. Next, they used an invisible glue and marble powder to affix the pieces back onto the pieta and fill in any gaps with replacement pieces. One of those missing pieces was the eyebrow. 
And when the tourists who had picked it up heard about the restoration progress happening, suddenly they felt convicted and guilty and finally said, I have the eyebrow. And the last piece was put into place. Then, after ten months of careful and painstaking and laborious work, the restoration was finally complete. The Pieta was revealed once more in as pristine condition as when Michelangelo first unveiled it in 1499. If we can go to the next slide, you'll see the restoration that took place. On the left hand, you can see the damage, and on the right is following the restoration. Would those people who spent the 10 months of labor and cost say it was worth it? You betcha. It was worth every bit of effort to restore it to its former glory. So today, let me tell you, if you know a fellow believer who has wandered from the way of Jesus, will you today commit yourself to refusing to gossip about them? to refuse to leave them alone in their false state? And then will you commit yourself to praying for them and seeking them out in order to restore them gently? If so, then know that you've got an ally. You're not in this alone. Jesus, the good shepherd, goes with you. In fact, he goes before you because he never stops looking. More than that, the Holy Spirit will empower you because you are doing God's work. The Holy Spirit will give you power. And the Father himself will bless you for it is in tune with his heartbeat that not one of his children should be lost but that everyone would return home to him and his embrace. Remember that God has called his church to be a family. And as such, the Christian life is not a solo endeavor. It is a team sport where no one gets left behind. There's a famous story that you've probably heard of a race that took place in the 1976 Olympics. However, these weren't the regular Olympics. These were the Special Olympics, which were held in Spokane, Washington. And nine contestants were lined up at the starting line, and when the gun sounded, they all started running down the track towards the finish line. But after a few steps into the race, one of the young men stumbled and fell onto the asphalt. He cried out in pain, skinning his knee. Two of the other runners immediately stopped their race, turned back, and went to help him up. A girl with Down syndrome kissed his knee where it was scraped and said, There, that will make it better. And then the two runners helped the fallen runner up, and all three of them ran to the finish line together, arms linked. The crowd stood to their feet, standing ovation for five minutes straight. Those three didn't win the race, but they won something far more valuable. They showed us that life isn't a competition about who crosses the line first at the expense of the fallen. They showed us that we're all running the same race together. And when one person falls, the rest of us need to stop what we're doing to go back and help them up, to get back into the race. Can you think of someone who's tripped and fallen? Will you be an expression of God's grace by going to them and helping to gently restore them? No matter how long it takes, it might be years, but no matter how hard it is, one day heaven's glory will reveal that it was worth every last ounce of effort if we see our once wandering loved one in that eternal home. 
And so today, if you also recognize that you yourself have wandered from God in any way, let me just tell you, God loves you so much. He loves you so much. He is so eager for your return that he is watching, he is waiting, he is calling. So why not run home today? Run home to him, for in him you will find mercy. In him you will find grace, and in him you will find not partial, but full restoration. For this is his heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in this message, you have revealed something to me of how you feel to the entire world. That we, your masterpiece, were marred by a vandal, were marred by sin. And you could have easily left us there. You could have easily started over. But you said, I'm going to restore them. And it's going to be painful. It's going to take a long time. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take the sacrifice, the broken body and blood of my only begotten son. But in the end, it's going to be worth it. Because we are going to be in eternity forever. Thank you, Lord. This is your heart. And so, Father, as we go through this life, We recognize that it's your heartbeat within us when we feel grief at those who once professed faith and were running a good race who have fallen away, who have wandered from the truth, who have been trapped by sin. And so, Lord, we pray that not not only would we stop short at feeling the grief of their loss, but that we would step further into your heart and say, we want to be like you in seeking and saving that which is lost, in restoring them to your home and into your care and relationship with you. You have called us to this ministry. And Lord, we recognize this morning it's not easy. It takes diligence. It takes persistence. It takes time. And yes, there is pain. But we pray, Lord, that we would not shy away from it, but that we would see it has eternal value. And so we pray, Lord, that we as a church family would build one another up, that we would encourage each other with those who are struggling, with those who are praying, and that we together would be a place that says, anyone who has wandered, anyone who has strayed, you are welcome here. You are welcome home. We missed you. We love you. You are restored. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us to that end for any who have strayed from you. We pray this according to your will, in Jesus' name. Amen.